How do you do? My name is Neil Martin, a composer and musician from Belfast in the north of Ireland, and you're listening to Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Anthony Toner, one of Northern Ireland's most highly regarded songwriters and guitarists. He's built a big following with a string of albums and a big touring schedule as well. His live performances are noted for his between-song stories. I have to ask about that. As well as his lyrics and finger-picking acoustic guitar playing. He's been described as James Taylor meets John Prine in a second-hand bookshop. I've got to ask about that, too. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, we are going to do what I call a song fest, where we're going to play a handful of Anthony's best works. We're going to talk about them. You're going to get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts, I can assure you. And you also know by now that I feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant to my guest somehow. And in this instance, I have chosen the song My Love from my recent album called Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. I chose this song because My Love has got a Neil Young kind of vibe. And Neil Young, I read, was apparently one of Anthony's youthful musical inspirations. So I thought it worked. So Anthony Toner, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you so much, Robert. What a pleasure. Well, listen, anybody that grew up and was inspired by Neil Young and James Taylor is a kindred spirit for me. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, I came fairly late to those guys. I grew up in a house where my parents had listened almost exclusively to old time rock and roll and country music. So, you know, by the time I was 18, I kind of knew all of the Chuck Berry and the Elvis stuff and, you know, some of the Jim Reeves and Charlie Pride and a lot of Christofferson and stuff like that. And then I started hanging out with some friends. We were in a an amateur drama group together. Uh, and they were they were much more kind of bohemian than I was. And I went to a party one night. And on the same night, for the first time ever, I heard Harvest. I heard uh, Mudslide Slim and the Blue Horizon, which is still one of my favorite albums ever, James Taylor. Uh, and I heard some Fairport Convention, the English folk rock group. And I heard Joni Mitchell Blue. And I just thought, where have these people been all my life when I've been listening to Chuck Berry and ACDC and Deep Purple and all the usual teenage stuff? So I, I, I came in fairly late, Robert, but as soon as I discovered that stuff, I was just completely hooked. I, I hadn't really taken the guitar seriously. And then when I heard James Taylor, I thought, I, I want to be able to do that with an acoustic guitar. And I just I went into a whole new kind of stage of my life. You know, what's great about music is that it, it is truly an international language. I mean, you're talking about all these American artists yeah. that impacted you 
growing up in Belfast, Northern Ireland. So many of the Irish artists that I've had on this podcast spoke about how they were infused with the traditional Irish music as they were growing up. Did that happen to you as well? Well, I mean, not so much. And again, it's it's mainly what you hear at your parents' knee, you know. Uh, my parents were never big fans of trad music, as we would call it. So the, there really wasn't any of it in the house. I didn't have any antipathy towards it. You know, I loved it when I heard it, but I just didn't kind of grow up steeped in the music of, you know, the chieftains and, you know, the boys of the loch and all of those kind of guys who are tremendous musicians. But all of the influences that I heard growing up tended to be American or they were English. You know, it was the Beatles or, or stuff like that. Well, listen, I totally understand what you're saying. And your parents definitely make a big difference. For me, my father was a trumpet player and he was from the big band era. So I grew up with him playing all this big band stuff. And then he got into Latin music, which I listened to because on the radio in New York City, which is where I'm from, they had Latin stations that would play this great Latin music. Yeah. And then I discovered some of the same people that you discovered. Okay. The British invasion era was my big era when I came of age musically. And that opened my eyes. Yeah. So tell me what it was like growing up in Belfast, because Belfast has had, you know, some tough times there. Did you have to live through that as well? Well, I mean, I, I grew up about maybe 50, 60 miles north of Belfast. Uh, I mean, I'm living in Belfast now. I've been here for about maybe 13 or 15 years. But the two cities, Belfast and Derry or Londonderry, depending on how you want to call that city, were both about maybe... 40, 50 miles away from where I grew up. And I would occasionally have gone there. But the sense was that it was a very unpredictable place to go. You could buy a ticket for a show and there was no guarantee that the show would actually happen because some incident would happen or there would be a bomb scare or some security alert or something like that. Um, where I lived, I was pretty sheltered from it. We did have a couple of incidents. I mean, there was one bombing where six people died. And I remember as a kid, uh, being guided home from school to avoid the, the, the town centre where that had happened. So I, I feel like I was kind of sheltered from it. The, the incidents that we had were, were pretty isolated, devastating, but still, you know, they were pretty few and far between. My parents were just so scared of going to the big cities, of going to Derry or going to Belfast. Uh, when I was growing up, this would have been early 70s, mid 70s. They just wouldn't have thought of it. They they just watched the news and thought that they could go up there and get caught up in something. For the rest of us in Northern Ireland, I think it's fair to say that there was there was always a tension. You you were very careful about what you said. You were very careful about where you went. You know, uh, there were certain bars that you wouldn't go into when you were growing up, and certain neighborhoods where you would feel more comfortable than others. But I, I guess that's maybe. That's probably just as true of New York City as it is of, of Northern Ireland. Just curious, was that for political reasons or religious reasons or, or what? Well, it could be a mixture of all of those things. I mean, the political situation here is, is very tied up with the religious situation. You know, the, the divide, you know, forms along those two lines. And there would be certain areas that you would think would be a Catholic area or would be a Protestant area. And some of those would be fairly safe. Catholic or Protestant areas and other places, you would be very careful not not to go there if you were from the wrong side of the tracks. 
But I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like we were living uh, through a situation of of open warfare on the streets where you had to kind of duck every ten minutes. You know, it was civilization went on, but you were just pretty careful about where you went. You know, and the schools here are largely segregated. You would go to a a Protestant school or a Catholic school. So there was a sense that you were part of a community that didn't really mix with the other community that much. Interesting. And music, of course, was a great unifier. You know, that's one thing I will say about that. That's what I was going to ask about next. How did all of this affect your music when you were coming of age? Um, There was a sense that being a James Taylor fan or a, a Stones fan was more important than any other badge that you wore, whether that was political or religious. I mean, I, I was was born and brought up as, as a Catholic. And because I got my, my kind of 11 plus exam, I went to a grammar school that was mostly Protestant. And I was part of a very small number of Catholic boys that were at that grammar school. And I never, I never felt weird about that. I felt uncomfortable maybe a couple of times during that whole period. But you were almost marked out at that school by the fact that you were, that, that you had the new Dire Straits album. You know, the, that you had the album and you'd be willing to lend it to somebody in exchange for the new ACDC album or whatever it happened to be. So people kind of thought of you in that terms or that you like to read you know, science fiction or that you read poetry or whatever it was. And, you know, the the lending thing that goes on at school, I don't know if it was the same for you, but the idea that if you wanted to find out about Pink Floyd, you would speak to Miller in class 5B because he had all the Floyd albums, but he would want you to lend him, you know, something that he hadn't heard before. And all of that seemed to kind of transcend any of the, the religion or politics. That was a tremendously exciting thing for me. Isn't that nice? You know, that's why I was saying earlier that music is the international language, because you've just described how music crossed the boundaries for you in a situation where there was, you know, trouble and and there were lines drawn. Yeah. So that's so interesting. Okay. I know you you've got into finger picking style on the guitar. And I want to talk about that because for anybody that doesn't know, that's where you, you use multiple fingers on your right hand if you're a righty. And uh, it's a lovely form of guitar playing. Not too many people know finger picking any longer. I read once that uh, Donovan taught John Lennon how to finger pick on the guitar. My favorite finger pickers on the guitar when I came of age were James Taylor, number one, because he was an idol of mine, and Paul Simon, who is a wonderful guitar player. Beautiful player. Tell me about your, your idols on the finger picking side. Well, those guys too. I mean, both both of those. James Taylor was my major influence. Uh, my my guitar style is is hugely influenced by him. Paul Simon for his chord work. It was so surprising and and beautiful. The things. I mean, if you take a look at the chord progression of something like America, that's a beautiful. It's a work of art. American tune, you know, is based on Bach and things like that. And the James Taylor model was the one that I followed until a few years later. I read. I read an interview with Ry Cooter uh, and I was starting to play a little bit of electric guitar at that stage. And I read this thing and somebody said, what advice would you give to young players? And he said, take your finger picks or take your, your plectrums and throw them away, play everything with your fingers. And the guy said, well, that tends to be very quiet. And he said, yeah, well, turn your amp up, you know, turn up loud and play soft. Uh, and I started listening to a lot of Cooter's approach to the guitar 
uh, which is much more a kind of claw hammer thing that he does where he, he plucks isolated notes of a chord. So I had that that kind of came into the mix. It gave me a bit more volume and a bit more twang along with the James Taylor thing. But it kind of started with JT because, and to this day, he's still mesmerizing. You know, the guy that I think of when I think of a guy that doesn't use a pick on a guitar, an electric guitar I'm talking about, was Jeff Beck. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. He had this remarkable ability to play with his fingers and just get a sound like no one else. And the control that it gave him, Robert, you know, you think about it because with, with your fingers, you're able to damp other strings and, you know, and, and bend one string and choke the others and so on. It gives you a tremendous amount of control, particularly if you're doing a lot of damping with the left hand. That kind of thing has always interested me. There's a more contemporary guy. Well, he's been around for quite a while who I idolize as a finger picker, a, a guy called Chris Smither, a songwriter. I think he's originally possibly from Boston. Uh-huh. But he's also associated with with New Orleans, and he's a tremendous player in that kind of how would I just kind of Lightning Hopkins sort of style, almost ragtime, but just really inventive and very very funky. And and again, it's all fingers. You know, I'm a bass player, and when I started playing the bass, everybody used a pick. And some of the groups in the '60s, you see, if you take a look at the YouTube videos, they're all playing with a pick. And some of them were absolutely terrific. I mean, Chris Squire, for example, with Yes, yeah. used the pick, and he was just otherworldly on the bass. But soon I came, like so many other bass players, to play with my fingers, okay, yeah. on my right hand. And now I don't think I could play with a pick even if I, if, if I was given one. There's just more control and more subtlety that I felt, at least on the bass, that you could have with just your fingers. Yeah. And also... Even even something as subtle as what part of your finger you're using. Yes. You know, if you watch someone like John Lee Hooker, who plays with the the kind of the meaty part of his thumb, uh-huh. you know, and he hits the string with the big fat part of his thumb. And most of us will will come down onto the strings from above and pluck with the ends of our fingers. He would play with the fat part of his thumb, and he gets a really really unique kind of sound with that. I've seen Van Morrison a couple of times, and you can see that he's going for the same sort of style. It's really it, it's quite, um, I don't want to say aggressive, but it's it's a very definite sound. And each note is articulated really, really clearly. Um, and things like that fascinate me. I've, I've also recently, if I ever do use a pick, someone told me to, to, to use the round end rather than the pointed end, to use the round end because you get a much more kind of smooth sound for jazz and blues with that stuff like that fast i could go on for days about things like that you know yeah have you noticed recently that everybody started to put pieces of rubber under their the bridge of their acoustic guitars no i didn't notice that but you know i had i had a guy on the show peter noon okay who was herman of herman's hermits oh yeah and i told him when we were talking about the stuff that herman's hermits did in the 60s they had a song that was a number one song called Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. And if you remember, the guitar player was the whole song, and he took a handkerchief and put it at the back of his bridge to muffle the sound of the guitar. If you ever go back and listen to it, that sound made the song, okay? Yeah. So we talked about it. He said, yeah, that's that's what the guy came up with, okay? Little things like that. Those things, they're, they're fascinating, you know, additions to the way we do it. I mean, don't, don't bass players put sponge under the strings now and things as well? I guess there are some guys that do it. I'm a traditional guy. I don't yeah, use yeah. any kind of 
pedals or anything like that. I say, if I can't find the sound somehow myself, I don't want to do it. All right, but I want to talk about your music. Okay, tell us about how you got started in, in the field and where things went for you at the beginning. Okay, well, I, I played for years before I, before I went professional, before I had any kind of um, uh, recognition. I, I had played in covers bands for years. I used to play around the house, and then I got a chance to join a band, and I ended up joining a kind of country and western band out playing dances in various bars and lounges and weddings and you know clubs and places like that. And it was a tremendous apprenticeship. I learned how to work with other musicians and how to how to improvise on the fly and how to kind of recognize chord changes and things like that. But the driving was horrendous, and I was I was holding down a day job, and I would you know get in it two o'clock in the morning and have to get up the next morning and be back in work at nine. And I fell asleep behind the wheel a couple of times and I thought, I've got to quit. I've got to quit this. And I went back to my acoustic roots and I formed or joined a kind of uh, an acoustic duo. I used to play much closer to home around sort of my own doors uh, up on the north coast of, of Northern Ireland. And somewhere in there, I started to write songs and I had kind of gathered four or five songs and I had got close to the age of 40 with these songs kind of knocking around. I didn't really play them live, but I, I thought they were pretty good. I'd heard a million songs and I kind of thought, if I've heard this many and I think it's pretty good, it probably is pretty good. I wanted to trust myself. So I, I got some money together and I went into a recording studio. I think I was worried that if I didn't do it at the age of 40, I would never do it. So I went into the recording studio and I, and I managed to record an album of 11 songs, which came out in 2002. You were 40 at the time, you're saying? Yeah. Is that, that right? Yeah, it's about that time. Okay. Good for you. Because I made my mark in music when I was 60. Okay. So oh, wow. it's nice to hear about somebody doing it at the age that you're just talking about. Yeah. And I, and I've, I've, I have kind of mixed feelings about it. Sometimes I think I should have started long before. And then at other times I think, well, I didn't have anything to say when I was that that young. By the time you hit 40, you've you've been over a few bridges, you know. You bet. But but the album came out and it and it was it was kind of well received, but I didn't really know anything about what I was supposed to do with it. I mean, the immediate thing that you do is you try and tour and you promote it and you spend some money on marketing. I kind of thought that you put the album out and that that would kind of be the thing mistaking the output for the outcome. But about six or seven years went by and I hadn't really done much more than that. And I had a few more songs gathered and I started to record a second album. And I was in a different personal situation. Then I, my marriage had broken up and I, I got remarried. And in the middle of it all, I had a song called Sailor Town, very John Prine influenced. Me and Elaine we've been hanging around in what was once sailor town Drinking cheap red wine by the light of the Belfast moon There's nobody left here that works at the docks It's all urban renewal and apartment blocks Summer is fading, winter will be coming soon And I recorded it almost as an afterthought on the album And it got to a radio presenter in Belfast. Uh, he's originally from Derry, actually, but he used to broadcast from Belfast four days a week. A guy called Jerry Anderson. And Jerry had an enormous audience and was very, very popular. And he fell in love with this song. And he used to play it 
almost every day. And suddenly I had a kind of a regional hit and people knew me as the Sailor Town guy. And that year I started to get asked to be part of festival lineups, to open for other artists, to be part of in the round shows. And I suddenly found that I, I had some profile. And this was just in Northern Ireland. To be honest with you, Robert, since then, all I've really done is just try and keep that momentum going by putting out another album every 12 months or 18 months and trying to write songs that will that will come up to that level. But that that was the breakthrough for me. You know, you had the benefit of radio when radio was still meaningful, okay? Yeah, exactly. I was, that's a good point. Today, of course, radio is nowhere near the, the meaningful outlet that it used to be. And unfortunately for musicians, it's all about streaming. And don't get me started on that because I have all kinds of problems about the whole thing. But nice to see that, you know, that's the way that your career got kicked off. Yeah. And, and since then, it's, I, I've, I've worked really, really hard to develop a relationship with a lot of venues. Uh, I, I'm lucky in the sense that I can afford to travel light. It's just me and a couple of guitars. That, that's light. I agree with you. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 I can do shows. I don't have to make a killing at a show because it's just me in a car and a couple of guitars. You know, I don't have to worry about the drummer and the bass player in the horn section and the other piano player or anything like that. So most of the time I've been able to tour solo. I've managed to keep a relationship with all of these venues. And I've just tried really, really hard to build a tribe because, as you quite rightly say, radio is not what it once was. CD sales are not what they once were. So I'm I'm kind of trying to keep this going on the basis of live performance and connection. Well, that's what musicians have to do these days. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. I've just released a new EP called The Singles Project that features five of my new songs. I'm pleased to say that the recording has gotten wonderful reviews. It's been called amazing, magical, fabulously enticing, a home run, and a sonic toward the force. How about that? The songs speak to the ups and downs of life, from the blissful, joyous Saturday morning to the darker commentary of Like Never Before and The Ship. Several reviewers said the songs show me exposed and vulnerable. And you know what? They're probably right. See for yourself. The songs can be streamed on Spotify and all the other streaming services. And you can check out all of my music at the Project Grand Slam website. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. All right, I want to go into the Songfest portion of our talk here. And we've got a few of your songs that are teed up, and I want to play a little bit and talk about them. The first one that I've got going underneath my voice is Well, Well, Well. And if the past goes down the drain I put my head in the clouds And I pray for rain Well, well, well 
Turn my face up to the lights Well, well, well Hope the days unnumber the nights Tell me about that one. Uh, that was a song for the third album. It was an album called The Duke of Oklahoma and Other Stories. And it's played in open G with a drop C. So it's quite an unusual tuning. I think it might be a Joni Mitchell tuning. And I had this lovely little riff and I had got most of the lyrics and I couldn't get it finished. And it lay around for almost a year. I could not get a verse to finish. Uh, and then I finally had a breakthrough. There's a line where it says, the memory won't let me be. I'm like a plastic bag that's caught in a tree. And I remember seeing that literally out of a bus window and going, oh, my God, that's the image. That's the image I'm looking for. That's the line, huh? You never know where you're going to get it. Right. And I, I included that, and I wanted to feature that because if people ask me what's my favorite song of mine, I tend to say that one because I think the sound of the guitar, the little riff, and the lyrics, I think it... I, the phrase I use is when the tennis ball hits the center of the racket. It felt to me like it, it all it all came together really well on that one. Other songs, I think, well, the chorus could have been better, or you know, the vocal could have been better. But on that one, I feel like it was it was the one. Are you one of the guys that kind of goes back and listens to their older music, or do you not listen at all after something has been released? I try not to, because I'll always find something that I. I wish I could go back and change. Isn't that the case? Yeah, of course it is. You know, you say, <laughs> looking back on it, he wasn't the drummer for that that gig, you know, or looking back on it, I would have changed that line or I would have yeah. got somebody else to play that solo. But, and yet there are also times where, I mean, you must be the same. There are also times when I put on albums that I've kind of almost shelved in my mind and I put on some of my stuff and I go, you know, that's not bad. That's better than I remember <laughs> it being, you know? I understand exactly what you're saying, because I go through that as well. Yeah. Interesting. All right, let's go to the second song. This is called The Road to Five Mile Town. She was the youngest of four daughters, and she married way too fast. In the days when vows were iron, and you had to make them last. But her father was a bruiser, and he bruised them twice a week. She couldn't live the life her mother had and turn the other cheek. So when she turned 16, she started counting off the days till she could find herself a husband and finally get away. Tell us about this one. Okay. Well, Five Mile Town is an actual place in, in Tyrone. It's down near the border uh, in County Tyrone. Uh, I always loved the name Five Mile Town. It sounds like something in a Western. And I had been reading a lot of novels by an Irish novelist called John McGahern. And th these are pretty bleak novels. They're, they're wonderful, but they're pretty bleak. So there's a lot of people who live lives of kind of rural isolation Um and kind of stunted promise and kind of lovelessness. They're quite, as I say, they're quite dark. And I think I'd, a lot of that had seeped into my mind. And I had this idea, character study of a woman who was married to a farmer 
and there was no love in the relationship and she felt terribly alone and isolated. So I, I kind of started to write this and it came really quickly. The images were really powerful and it came really quickly. And I had a terrific little guitar figure that I was really, really pleased with. It was in a minor key and it moved nicely from one chord to another. And my only challenge was that it was so gloomy that I really wanted to rescue the woman at the end of the song. And I ended up with something like nine verses. It was ridiculous. It was about seven minutes long. And I, and I just said, no, I can't rescue her. She has to stay there. That's the way it's, it works. So I cut the song off after the sort of fourth verse. And I have a lot of people asking me if I'm ever going to write a sequel and rescue her. Well, actually, you've got the sequel written because you've got all these other verses you just said. Yeah, but they weren't good. They weren't good. You could tell that the instinct was to be a nice guy, and that's not often the case. You know, Dylan, in his, you know, some of his uh, first works, wrote songs that had one verse after another verse after another. Not only were they great verses, but I was always amazed that he could remember all the words when he was singing them in concert. Yeah. If you take something, was it what's the the big one? Um, hard rain's gonna fall, right? It, it, how do you remember all that? Because it's so fast <laughs> that the, the words kind of tumble in after each other. It's amazing, really, really piece of work. You know, particularly when you get to a certain age, if you don't have a teleprompter or something like that in front of you, you just can't remember. Yeah. Sometimes I, I can't even remember the names of my songs when I'm going to <laughs> announce them. <laughs> then I'm really in trouble. All right, let's go to the last one. This is called Exit Wounds. My friend's dad had this pistol and he kept it in a bedroom drawer. Now this was life during peacetime. I don't even know what he had it for. It wasn't even in a holster or any kind of presentation box. It was just lying in this drawer between his underpants and socks. Now he checked the safety catch and he squared up like a man. And then he told me it was loaded, and he placed it in my hand. My friend had seen this all before, and he sat at the foot of the bed. He knew when his dad was on the rum and coke, it would sometimes turn his head. Tell us about this. Uh, this is an almost entirely true story. It's a monologue. I always loved that form of songwriting. Uh, the first time I ever heard that was Chris Christopherson. Uh, he had a, a monologue on the Me and Bobby McGee album called To Beat the Devil. Uh, and then years later, I heard, well, Jim Reeves used to do these as well. You know, and Burl Ives and people like that. Burl Ives. That's a name you don't hear too often these days. Oh, I know. Burl, Burl Ives. Ives. Yeah. But he, he, had, he had, I think he had a whole album full of monologues and things that kind of re, where he would read poems with music in the background. So I always wanted to do one of those. And I was in a car coming home from, from work one night. And I started to tell the story of this, this incident. You know, my friend's dad had this pistol and he kept it in a bedroom drawer. And I kind of remembered where it went from there. Basically, it was a story of this character letting us as kids hold this pistol. You know, we were kids and we were fascinated by guns and stuff like that. And he said, oh, you want to see? I'll let you see a gun. And he brought this pistol out of a drawer and gave it to us. And we both held this thing and kind of pointed it at the wardrobe and everything. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting story. It's an interesting thing to do to a kid that age. And it's an interesting thing to have experienced. And I hadn't thought about it for years. And I started in the car kind of trying to get lines to rhyme with each other. And by God, I had three verses by the time I got home. 
I remember running into the house and writing them down really, really quickly. Uh, and then I found another little guitar figure, again, very John Prine influenced and recorded it really, really quickly. But that one has become a live favorite because people, people don't do monologues that much anymore. So it's kind of unusual in the set to have one where the guy just talks, you know. I can imagine. I hope the gun was not loaded also. That's the only part of it that is that is not entirely accurate because in the song I say that he 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 told me it was loaded and he put it in my hand and it actually I remember that it wasn't but it wouldn't have been a very interesting song if it hadn't been loaded. All right. Well, I won't tell anybody that you changed it. No, no. Let's just keep it between us. <laughs> That's or, right. Nobody has to know. All right. We have been speaking here with the great Anthony Toner, uh, who has been for many years one of Northern Ireland's most highly regarded songwriters and guitarists. Anthony, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been so much fun to have you. What a pleasure. It's just been a joy. It's just really nice to talk about stuff like this with somebody who's who's been down the same road, Robert, so it's a pleasure. Right, well, I hope we both stay on that road for quite some time. Yeah, me too. All right. I want to thank you all for listening here. And, you know, we're going to play now that song that started off the episode. It's my song called My Love. I want to thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com. I love you oh so 
Oh, so much, my love.